welcome to Secret Skin on the Infinite Guest Network, distributed by American Public Media, produced and edited by the Platform Collection, recorded in a closet by me. This is like the third time My podcast team doesn't have no words And this podcast is called Secret Skin That's an abstraction of Secret Skin by Bus Driver Not this real skin, but the name of one of his songs This podcast is called Secret Skin This podcast is also not called a podcast Yeah, yeah it's also got another name that is called the Secret Radio Hour Sometimes to some people that I don't want to say secret skin to, I think Other than that, I believe in quantum physics, so No name is static and accurate Hi folks, this is uh, Open Mike Eagle here What I should have said in that last part of the theme song is that No one name is static and accurate that's the whole quantum physics thing is that it's a whole lot of states of being that are possible at once. So if you give yourself five names, it's probably more accurate than just having one. And so me calling this show Secret Skin and also Secret Radio Hour puts me at a more accurate state of reflecting how things are subatomically than if I just gave it one name. Class dismissed. Uh, this episode of Secret Skin is uh, featuring a good friend of mine, an interview with a good friend of mine, a guy who goes by the professional name of P.O.S., who is a rapper, a musician based out of uh, Minneapolis, St. Paul, the Twin Cities. Um, he's a guy who's been doing alternative slash indie slash whatever way you want to categorize it uh non-normal rap music for quite some time now uh he's a very well established entity in the lane that i also traverse uh which is to say in my world it's kind of a big deal but he's a good friend of mine and uh, it's really a pleasure to have him on the show to be able to have a good solid conversation with him it took place in St. Paul, or was it in Minneapolis? I think it was in Minneapolis, actually. I was there to do a college gig with Hannibal Burris, and we organized an after party that featured um, Hannibal, myself, the Lucas Brothers, POS, Serengeti, and Mike Miklon from Doomtree, which is also uh, the same crew that POS belongs to, uh, Doomtree, that is. It was a really great couple of days um getting a chance to work alongside those people and it's always good to be in the twin cities it's a place that uh has taken a good amount of liking to me i tend to be there more often than i should being that i don't live there at all um i was actually there a couple of weeks before that show and um and the time that this interview took place i was there to be part of POS's comeback show. He had had 
some health issues, and he's going to go into that in the interview some. But he had been off the scene for the better part of a year, and uh, he had me to be part of his comeback show that was actually really epic and huge um, outside in downtown Minneapolis. He's going to talk about that a little bit, too. That uh, had featured SZA, a DJ set by Policia, I think is how you pronounce that. My big homie Bus Driver from Hellfire Club was a part of it. Leaf was a part of it. Alan Kingdom. Uh, Dame Funk, another homie, was a part of the after set as well. It was a really epic time and got to really see Minneapolis really in mass for the first time. I've been doing shows there for the past three or four years and, um, you know, have seen good packed small rooms, but it was the first time I've gotten a chance to really play for a large crowd in Minneapolis. I played the Soundset Festival that's organized by Rhyme Sayers a year ago, and I was at um, one of the smaller stages, though, so I think there was maybe um, a thousand people at the stage that I played for in Soundset. Um, and this set as part of POS's comeback show, which was coined by uh, POS and, and the rest of the show organizers. It was called The Fucking Best Show Ever. T-F-B-S-E was the acronym. It was a really amazing time. Um, and I found out in the course of the interview the exact amount of people who were there. And it was, it was good to hear. It was a nice nice number, a good, uh, good amount of folks to be put in front of. So I was really appreciative for that. And one of the uh, things we ended up talking about was how supportive the Minneapolis is of its homegrown talent uh, across genres. And that's created this really fertile soil for the uh, independent rap music that's come out of there that POS is a part of. And a lot of uh, other homies of mine, Greg Grease, a lot of the Rhyme Sayers cats. So that's Atmosphere and Brother Ali and a bunch of other acts that are really huge Um and very influential that have been able to come out of that area. And it always makes me think of how L.A. is, by contrast, <clears throat> L.A. has been a place that's been supportive of me, especially in the last couple of years. Uh, I've been able to find some very unique and very strong support here in Los Angeles. But for the most part, overall, when you talk about L.A., you're not talking about a place that's like really paying attention to what's going on in this backyard very much. I mean, it's obviously a function of it being central to the uh, entertainment in industry on a whole. So it's very difficult, I would imagine, for um, people who are interested in entertainment to be scouring the streets of Los Angeles looking for what's happening when uh, right up the street or right up the hill you have basically what goes out into the world as the you know top level top quality entertainment that all emanates from here and I think that dictates an attitude of people um, looking for in one sense money to validate what's important in terms of entertainment um, I think a lot of people here have the sense that if something is uh, on its own or independent or struggling in a way that it must not be valid or must not be very good. And I can't say that speaks to everybody. Um, I think it's just something that I've seen um, in young adults here uh, and, and, and the youth here as well, because I, I used to work in schools a lot here and and would um, 
see what the teenagers graduate. Uh, sorry, not graduated. I would like to see them graduate as well, but to pay attention to what they gravitate towards. And a lot of what they gravitated towards were things that got validated other places. And I see that in the adults here, too. They tend to come out for... Okay, I'll give you an example. There was or is, I'm not sure because it didn't happen this year, a rap festival organized by MERS, who's an L.A. independent rapper who's become a worldwide name. He has a festival called Paid Dues. And on this festival, he books a lot of uh, independent rap acts from all over the country. People like Tech 9 who's out of Kansas City. People like Sage Francis, who I believe is out of Rhode Island. Uh, the who's who, basically, in independent rap music. And when I go to these festivals, uh, one year, uh, a crew I'm a part of called The Swim Team got to perform at one of these festivals for thousands of people, and it was amazing. But you see people at these festivals who are clearly rap fans and clearly live in the Southern California area, but they don't come out to shows or, or exhibitions or anything that happens locally or very rarely. They tend to want to wait for these other acts. And, and I think it's a microcosm of how people treat entertainment on Los Angeles on in Los Angeles as a whole. And to uh, contrast that with Minneapolis or my experience of it and what seems to be POS's and anybody I talk to whose experience of it is that Minneapolis and St. Paul and the Twin Cities and the state of Minnesota are very supportive. They're looking for what's happening there and looking to support it and looking to be a part of it. And it's, uh, it's big out there. It struck me one day when I was talking to POS, I think we were having breakfast somewhere and he was telling me... Um, that a couple of his friends who were in bands and kind of had semi-successful careers had decided to stop being in bands and to start rapping, which is an amazing thing to hear for somebody who lives in Los Angeles. Because what tends to happen here is that the, uh, the, the, the aggressive apathy of of uh of the city of Los Angeles it uh it tends to beat the ambition out of rappers. I don't know about the rest of uh the, you know I don't know about what happens to people in other genres. I mean, I'm assuming, you know, there's a thousand actors that quit every day. Um this is a place where people pack up a suitcase and come in from other places just like I did. And the rigors of these industries and how you have to perform and be chosen and be lucky and be attractive and be all of these things to um, to advance. I'm sure it wears people out. It wears people thin and they turn around and leave. But you just get this sense sometimes that L.A. as a city, like if it was a person, if it was personified, it would hate you. It would hate you. Like even you, the listener, like L.A. might hate you just just for being who you are, maybe just for not having enough money. We're not having a nice enough vehicle to uh, to navigate its many freeways, many, many freeways, not enough freeways, but many. And um, that's L.A. L.A. is not a loving place. L.A. is not a community place. It struck me today because there's a lot of protests that are happening around the country for police brutality on today. There was a huge rally in Washington, D.C. There was a huge rally in New York City. 
And I'm sitting here in Culver City, California. And I feel like, man, I would really love to be around some people like that with that sort of energy, some like-mindedness, some support that people would, that want to change things. I notice that these things happen more in other places. I think there's a couple reasons why. One of them I've noticed from living other places and being other places that a lot of cities encourage mass gathering. Um, I'm from Chicago. Every year there's a huge thing called the Taste of Chicago that happens in Grant Park. And it's the kind of thing where every demographic of person that you can think of is encouraged to be there. The city actively promotes it and markets it so that everybody descends upon Grant Park in downtown Chicago and we all have this shared experience together. And there's this place, Grant Park, that can handle that and is built for those kind of, you know, mass exhibitions. Los Angeles doesn't really have that. Um, there's no Times Square. There's no mall on Washington. There's no Beale Street. There's no Bourbon Street. There's no place where people organically just get together. There's places like the Grove or places like City Walk where, you know, um, a corporation or some some landowners got together and decided to make a shopping experience where people can get together and, and it be shared and you you pay for parking and you go to the Apple store and you you know you get lunch at BB King's or you know something like that but it's not the same as just encouraging people to have a giant picnic like what happens in other cities or have a giant organic you know uh, Sixth Street and Austin drinking binge together. L.A. is not really like that. And I think that's one important thing that keeps these kind of mass um, exhibitions from happening. These kind of protests, these kind of demonstrations that I would like to be a part of or at least have a closer proximity to. The last important thing or potent thing that I heard happened here is that people uh, got together and stopped the freeway like they all spilled onto the freeway and stopped the traffic and that's I think maybe that reflects the extremes people feel like they have to go to to have the voices heard here um, and so I think there's a culture issue in terms of people getting together and having their voices heard but I also think that if you look at the history of Los Angeles and you look at what happened in Watts in 1965, or you look at what happened in South L.A. in 1992 as a result of the uh, the verdict of the Rodney King policeman um, not being convicted. And I feel like what's happening around the country, like what, what's happening in Ferguson kind of happened here already in a sense. And it. It happened 20 years ago, and I think it kind of changed things, like maybe not in the, um, you know, magically overnight made things better kind of way. But I think that this city feels like it's had the worst of it, something like that. Since then, there's been... A lot of policy changes that have happened around L.A. There's been a lot of money thrown at programs, for instance, that encourage things around the concept of multiculturalism. And I think that's taken hold in the city a little bit. And the way that that multiculturalism is defined is kind of like 
everybody kind of agreeing just to be colorblind, everybody agreeing to kind of keep their um, keep their culture kind of in and amongst themselves and to participate in mass as a city in a kind of unified kind of way. Um, I know New York is often called a melting pot, but I feel like in New York inside of groups and even demonstrated outside, like, you know, there's there's bigger flourishes of racial and cultural identity, like the the, you know, the parades, the Puerto Rican parades, the uh, the gay and lesbian parades um, in, in Los Angeles. Things aren't so demonstrative. I feel like people in their own homes, in their own communities, they celebrate whatever they want to celebrate in the way that they choose to do it but there's almost kind of this unspoken thing in the city where you kind of don't do that in mass and i think it speaks to what i was saying earlier too about there not being necessarily um very many places to do that but i've also seen like i said working in schools uh i know for a fact that here the police have far more um active community programs where the officers definitely want to make themselves known to people in the community and they want to do the things that it takes to build that trust more than other places. I think that's a result of 1992. I think that's a result, you know, further back of 1965. It's just a different sort of racial and cultural psychology here. It's almost like everybody agreed to kind of just stay on their side of the tracks. And that's not the kind of thing that I think is taking hold around the country. It's certainly not the kind of thing that's taking hold in Ferguson where there seems to be far more of an active contrast. There's far more of a distance between the people and the police. There's a far more distance, or there's a bigger distance between different classes of people. Where Los Angeles, you know, is kind of known for having ritzy neighborhoods really, really close to poor ones, even if there might be a, a hill or a mountain, some physical feature of the geography that designates places. Proximity wise, they're really close to each other. And there's just this weird kind of respect that kind of goes back to everybody kind of wanting to be left alone and have their own space. And maybe the specter of the uprisings that have happened in the past kind of keep things in an odd check in a weird way but that's los angeles we're talking to pos in minneapolis at a coffee shop that is quite active we talk about a lot of things we discuss his history as an artist how he came up the things that influenced him as a young person in the twin cities and his journey into becoming the uh, independent rap musician that he is today and uh, this is Secret Skin, and this is part of the Infinite Guest Network from American Public Media. My next episode will be part of the Infinite Guest Year End Extravaganza. On December 22nd and 23rd, most of the shows from the network will share some of their best material and look back at 2014. I don't know what I'm going to do yet. I have many ideas. As usual, I'll be quantum and choose two or three of the best ones and do an unclear amalgamation of all three. Follow at Infinite Guest on Twitter for more information. But for right now, check out my talk with the one and only POS. This is Secret Skin.
There's a secret radio hour. And this is it. I don't have a throat. Here with POS, did an amazing pop-up show last night at the Public Functionary Gallery in beautiful northeast Minneapolis. Yeah, I can't tell any part of this place from any other part, honestly. I'm very terrible at knowing my visual Twin Cities geography. Yeah. But yeah, it was hosted by Hannibal Burris and featured... Uh, P.O.S., myself, Mike Micklon, and uh, Serengeti. It's kind of like a... You know what I was noticing online? Is that the flyer was making everybody extremely jealous. Yeah. Yeah, people were really <laughs> upset. Like, that, I mean, even people here were like, what? <laughs> but then people everywhere else was like, what, what, what's going on there? Like, yeah, Atlas yeah, always, always has that, always has that, like, what is, what's going on up there? And you can have a metal band and a rap, rapper <laughs> play together, you can have comedy rap shows, you can, you know what you want. You just show up and be killing it. Yeah, I mean, like, your, your show you put together a couple weeks ago, the best fucking show ever. That's how it was good. I'm best sorry, show the ever. fucking best show ever. <laughs> T-F-B-S-E. Yeah. But that was a pretty crazy lineup too of people you might not expect to play together. You know what I mean? So how did you, how did you go about picking the artist over on there? I wanted to pick the pretty much me and the guy that threw it with me. His name's Jake. He helped me last night too. Yeah. Um, we we just we sat outside and we brainstormed all the people that I would want to have a show with. You know, because I I was off for. Pretty much six months on uh, got a kidney transplant and then uh, healed up from it. Pretty much was like, what are you gonna do for your return show? Right. And I just made a list of all the artists I would possibly want to play with, and uh, pretty much ba- based on who was available at the time and who we could afford, we ended right. up with uh, a bill of like pretty much just like the weirdest black folks I've ever heard. Of. Yeah, yeah, and you know there was a little undercurrent of that last night too. Mm-hmm. Like I know uh, Mike Micklon isn't black, but. Um, just with, you know, me and you and Hannibal and Serengeti, like, that's like a good <laughs> little black weirdo mix. Oh, <laughs> man, those, who are the other? The Lucas yeah, Brothers. The Lucas yeah, the Lucas Brothers. Yeah, yeah. I've seen all their cartoon. I, you know, I, I didn't even know they had a cartoon. Their cartoon dude. is hilarious. Yeah, like, it's like, like, who are these dudes? It's like Fox or something, right? I don't know what it's on. I see it on the internet. I mean, I, mean, I don't know what network does anything ever. <laughs> uh, yeah, I'd, I'd never seen it, but those guys were amazing, too. And so, I was here yesterday, uh, primarily to do that college gig with Hannibal um, at the U. Huge Kaufman. I had 800 kids in there, dude. And I, I like Kaufman. I, I couldn't have been more uncomfortable. <laughs> Could not have been more uncomfortable. Were you in a felt room with a divider wall? No, it was just like, it, it, it felt like a giant cafeteria yeah. with a weird balcony that looked like the Titanic on one side. Yeah. It was really strange. And, you know, um, the sound was set up for a comedy show. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it was like four speakers yeah. in the whole house. So, you know, I got to perform my, my rap tunes. And you, know, and, and, you know, it's 800 people, but there's 50 feet of space between the stage and first yeah. row. I played there before. Yeah. It's tight when you get to play outside of it for like the spring concerts. Right, like right. But whenever they just put you in the cafeteria, it's always ridiculous. You say in Minneapolis, kind of anything goes here. That's what you feel like. Um, I feel like it. Yeah, I feel like there's the scene, there's the rap scene, there's all the different music scenes in the community. But 
it's it's not ever difficult to just either combine them or ignore them and put on a weird <laughs> different kind of show or whatever. Do you feel no. like as has your because you you're born and raised here? Yeah? Has your experience always been like that of the city? Has it always been like very blended in terms of genre and people's um, tastes? You know. You know, I, I I came into the music scene in like basement punk and hardcore shows, mm -hmm. which were all just punk and hardcore. Yeah. And then the scene kind of. What year was that? That was. Or what era? What era? You know, mid '90s. Okay. You know, just like going to. So you're like in high school. Yeah, high okay. school. Um, yeah, high school, and then right out of high school was was all like basements and house shows. It was a big thriving bands would tour all over and play just basements. You know, really, they were good enough basements to where a band could come and play a club and then come play somebody, somebody's house the next day, mm -hmm. or play in Milwaukee at a club and then come play in a basement here and okay. keep going on tour. Then we got the all ages venue called the Foxfire. That was around for like two years. Saw uh, Get Up Kids and At the Drive in there on Halloween mm. to give you a vibe of yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, what era that was. Um, it's like a 350 cap room. All ages. All ages. Yeah. Every show was all ages. It didn't last very long in downtown. It just didn't make any money, mm -hmm. you know, because there was no booze being sold. So. <laughs> the problem is having it downtown. If you put it on the outskirts of downtown where rent's a little bit cheaper, mm -hmm. the place will last a little right, bit longer. Right, you throw it downtown. And yeah. they're not they're not getting liquor revenue. Yeah. They just straight up ticket sold. Yeah. Or that rent is too damn high. <laughs> so high school hardcore punk shows. And then are you listening to hip hop then too? Or? Um, yeah, I mean I always listen to it a little bit. Most mostly because of you know, my family would listen to it. The radio was playing it. There's lots of Dr. Dre and Snoop Dogg everywhere in the world. So I was really, uh, you know, I was always able to rap. But playing in bands, being like the singer, guitar player of a band was what I just thought was gonna happen in my life. So what what, uh, what do you think? I mean, was it just your personal taste to put you on that path? You so, so your family, I guess, wasn't really like into a lot of alternative type nah, shit. Nah, like, they all thought I was a total weirdo for <laughs> most, most of my life, my family was. So, I mean, so what was that? Like, I mean, you got, you got brothers and sisters? I don't. I mean, I have a half-sister, same dad, lives in K Kentucky. Okay. But, you know, I haven't spent tons of time with her. Yeah. We text and we talk and we email sometimes, but... Is she a weirdo, too? She's a weirdo, too. Nice. We, like, grew up totally separate from each other. <laughs> and Dad's you know, weirdo genius strong. Dad's <laughs> weirdo genius strong. Um, but, yeah, I, I always listen to hip-hop kind of as, like, a background piece of my life or when I was fitting in with my cousins or whatever if the song was a hit I would like it mm -hmm. but it wasn't you know the music that I sought out and chased after and like developed my personality from was you know punk and hardcore well and how, how did you find punk and hardcore like in high school skateboarding, uh, skateboarding. when I was in um, sixth grade uh, I was skating a lot, and I'd, you know, just encounter older kids skateboarding. So you were just in that culture, you know yeah. what I mean? So it's like, they'll give you some cigarettes and a cassette tape full of songs, <laughs> and then, you know, you, you find out what the bands are, and you read the thank you lists, and find out what bands they like, yeah. and read those thank you lists, and, you know, I feel like music was a really personal thing back then, because you couldn't just 
punch in the name of a band and find every band right. that sounds like it and every song of theirs and just be like, oh, this is cool, whatever. You'd have to, like, you know, search out what you're trying to hear and it just makes everything kind of feel more special or important. Yeah. You end up making yourself like bands you don't necessarily love because you ordered their 7-inch you've been waiting for it for three weeks. But, you know, I've always noticed, too, even with your, you know, CDs, there's always, like, some interesting packaging or something to give it a little bit of that personal it's, flair, too. It, it's super important to me, yeah. too. I mean, all of my favorite music is stuff that, not just the album was good, but, like, take, like, OK Computer, yeah, 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 the Radiohead yeah. record, you open it, all the songs are really good, all the lyrics are there, kind of written by hand through, you have to read through all this crazy, <laughs> you know, super subversive art that is really friendly and fun, but at the same time really, like, disheartening and worrisome, you know? <laughs> that, that was always the really cool and inspiring stuff to me, is having the whole package kind of deliver a feel and a vibe. So you're in high school, you, you're starting to uh, go to punk shows and hardcore shows, and then like how does how does rap kind of like into your life in like an important kind of way? Um, in 11th and 12th grade, um, I started rapping more as just like I'm doing this for fun now. A lot of our, my friends were rapping. Uh, Mike Mike McClellan from Doomtree was in uh, our city going to high school, he got kicked out of his family's house and was living with his uncle out here, Fresh Prince style. And, uh, you know, he was rapping all the time. I was getting into, like, I could always rap, just I'd rap with my family. It was just a thing I could do. That was never anything I took seriously, but it was something I could always do. Um, we would skip school and we'd drive around. Like, one of us would hop in the trunk because there was only, like, a couple passes to get out of the lot at school. And we'd drive around and, you know, Mike would always show up to school with, beat tapes mm -hmm. and I'd always bring my boombox my girlfriend's boombox and we'd listen to the beats and we'd drive around he'd throw in a beat tape sometimes we'd throw in like a rhyme series headshots tape <laughs> and rap over the songs we didn't like and then listen to the cool songs so what year what year was this this is headshots time yeah, like, this is 11th and 12th grade um, I would have graduated in 99 so okay. like 98 99 okay um, and just like sharpening up raps and getting getting into it and then I think I started taking rap seriously because my band broke up. Mm, what was it? What was your band? My band was called Ohm. It was like uh, melodic hardcore. Some people call it pop punk. So what, what was the story behind break them up, breaking up? It's just seniors in high school. Yeah. Right? <laughs> one, one went away to one, college. One dude <laughs> went away to college and one dude went to hair school. Somebody <laughs> joined the army. <laughs> yeah, it, it was just the three of us. And I, uh, I kind of had like my first like, life. My children. <laughs> had my first like real life panic because the thing that I dedicated all my time was just like ended right there. Right. We started we started our band in ninth grade and I believed that that was what I was gonna do with myself and then in so the band grade, was together three years? Yeah. I switched schools to be with these dudes so we get we started our band in the summer. I was very dedicated to music. And what did you play then? Guitar? I played guitar. I played guitar and bass and drums, but I played guitar well. Okay. You know, and that was what I was doing. I was doing this band. But I could always rap. And uh, so when Kai, the bass player, went to college, I pretty much, within a week, joined a band called uh, Cadillac Blindside as the drummer. Cadillac what? Cadillac Blindside. Okay. Yeah. They were on Soda Jerk Records. I was the drummer. Joined that band immediately. Started like playing road shows and getting my, my uh, getting some road legs under me. And then 
played drums in a band called Hard Knocks with an X. It's another like kind of street punk swinging others vibe. And then uh, started with the band Building Better Bombs with my friend Isaac. That band developed into Marijuana Death Squad, which, oh, okay. which we still do now. And I started rapping. Just like, that's a thing I can do by myself. So I'm just going to go do it by you myself. You know, the autonomy of rap, man. Like, it's so it's huge. It's so... I don't know, you know, honestly, I was riding around with Hannibal last night, and I, we got out to go to the show, um, like, he hopped out and just started walking towards the venue, and I had to get out and grab, like, my gear and sit, and it was, like, one of the few times I felt, like, jealous of somebody else's <laughs> autonomy, like, damn, he, oh, this whole shit is just in his body. I guess that's kind of even how it started. Just you know, people that did, did, did felt they wanted to be musical but didn't have any access to yeah, anything. Man, you know what I mean? That's definitely how it started. I feel like punk rock and hip hop come from like the very same place in the uh, in the suburbs. You gotta like subvert somehow, but you have access to instruments. And in the city, you don't necessarily have access to instruments, but you got access to stuff that you could turn into an instrument. Maybe if you try, you gotta turn. Table, you got yeah. like a tape deck, you got your brain, you got pots and pans. Pots and pans. <laughs> First song I ever made was in uh, fifth grade, and it definitely involved a football helmet and a drumstick and a little tape player. Tight. Where's it? Where's it? Did you record it? Did I, demo did, somewhere? I did. There's a demo somewhere. The <laughs> first line is I'll hit you in the head with a piece of cornbread, dude. <laughs> I found, I found my first lyric. Classic bars, you know, man. Yeah. Classic bars. Dude, when did you record your first like song? And was P.O.S. always your rap name? Oof. My uh, P.O.S. was my rap name since I was 14. Okay. It was Pissed Off Steph. Pissed Off Steph. Quickly became every other yeah, possible yeah, you, thing you, you can throw in there. so many combinations. Yeah. yeah, Piece of Shit was second. Just on some like, fuck these people. Right. I'm just some normal ass piece of shit out here <laughs> trying to do it, you know? <laughs> Just being like a little angry, <laughs> angsty, yeah. yeah, angsty dude. Yeah. That's funny. Teenagers are the only people who think that everybody's piece of shit. Yeah, it thinks <laughs> everybody's totally out to like destroy their life. Yeah, I have a 15 year old. I'm 33. I had a kid when I was 17. Damn. He is 15 now, and he is also a rapping, and also thinks the entire world is out to destroy him. <laughs> Um, Fuck you, Dad. Can I have a ride to St. Paul? Is he is he angsty? Is <laughs> he's, he really angsty? he's so mad about everything. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. It's, Did it come on suddenly? I want you know. I got a five. It came. Old, it came on really suddenly. My kid I feel is like very mild mannered, but I can like I'm I'm on guard yeah. for when the change occurs. He's always been wild. He's always been really smart. He's always been uh, you know, not never real trouble. But trouble. You know? <laughs> trouble um, in his heart. Yeah. He's been a good reader. He's been reading like. Whatever of my anarchist literature he finds lying oh, around the house since okay. he was a little kid. Right, spike the punch a little bit. Spike yeah. the punch by mistake. I just didn't <laughs> think he was going to be picking up every book he saw and reading it. But then all of a sudden he was 14. Now. And it, to me, it feels like you do your best to like instill as much knowledge as you can into these old maniacs until <laughs> they're you know 12 or 13, and then you gotta just you gotta be able to like drop the reins and right. see if they go straight. Right. You know, you can't. You know, if you're if you're gonna be a jerk about it, you can stop them from doing anything they want to do when they're 15. But then you're a jerk. And then they're gonna do it. And anyway. they're gonna do it anyway. Do you know what I'm saying? Anyway. Like the way that me and his mom see it is, we try to just 
just lay down the guidelines of what he should do, and then you know you gotta let him make his mistakes because that's that's how you learn. You know? Yeah, and, I, and I, there's no, I don't think there's any way around rebellion. There, there isn't. This podcast is called parenting. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but no. Um, yeah. I heard somebody say one time, and it always stuck with me. Like since they're gonna rebel anyway. You should just put them in Catholic school where, 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 where rebelling is just wearing like one button open. <laughs> you know what I mean? See, in, in, in our house, rebelling is something you have to work really hard to do. Right? Yeah. We've always been like, we're some hippies, man. Yeah. We let this dude like grow and learn and do his thing. Yeah, yeah. You know, go outside. We're not scared of you getting shot because we're not in a neighborhood you can get shot at. Go enjoy the neighborhood. Take on these blocks. See what's up out there. There. You know, but as much freedom as you could possibly give anybody, is that, is that take more. Did you grow up like that? Did you have like free reign around the city when you? Kind of, yeah. yeah. My mom, my mom did thought about it the way that I kind of did, where she just gave me all of the tools necessary to have, you know, the ability to make an intelligent choice, mm-hmm. and then just like let me go. Yeah. You know, she had to. I mean, it was just me and her. She had to work. She had a lot of work to do. I came home from school a good three or four hours before she got home from work. Mm-hmm. So she had to kind of trust that I was going to be on the right path. And, you know, I made mistakes like everybody, but, I, you know, I know right from wrong. <laughs> I did all right. So at 17, you're, wait a minute, no, you're at 14, you're POS already. Yeah, 14 on POS. Um, and you're recording then? You're making you're making um, songs? I'm making songs, but I'm making songs with my band Ohm. I'm making songs with my band. Uh, now, when did Ohm break up again? Like, what? Nah, nah. Okay, okay, so you're, you're out of high school at that point. Okay. And so, from Ohm to, you said what, Cadillac Blindside? Cadillac Blindside, Hard Knocks, Building Better Bombs, Rapping, all came right as that band broke up. So when you were rapping, you were rapping with Mike then? Or? I was rapping by myself. I was rapping with Crescent Moon from Odd Jobs. Um, I was rapping with people who weren't rappers but thought it was fun to rap. Mm-hmm. You know. Do any of those people still rap or have careers now? Um, Mikey is in Doomtree. Um, Alexi was in a group called Odd Jobs, and I was in a group called Mixed Blood Majority with okay. Laser Beak. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's yeah. one of the legends of this city, if you ask me. Um, Toki. Toki put me on my first show. Damn, really? Hyrus so Toki was Hyrus. already doing Oh, man. Toki, Toki has been, like, at this. Killing it forever. No Toki, idea. Toki put me on my first show. It's Toki Wright, by the yeah, way. Toki Wright. High Respects put me on some of my first shows. You know, like... As, as a as a rapper in this community, I didn't like come out loved. You know, I came from a music that was abrasive and jarring, so I made abrasive and jarring music. But it's interesting. I, I think I think my impression was that you kind of developed like way outside of the scene. Yeah. But I mean, Tokyo High respects us. Like, yeah, those guys were like embedded in it. That's yeah, what I'm that's, saying. That's they were, the scene. You know, they were what I mean? the first people that like reached out to me or saw that I was doing something different, but it wasn't bad. Yeah. You know, I did some like there was this head spin and like all these like community hip hop shows where you'd show up and there'd be a headliner, but a lot of it was just like, come on, free stuff. Right. You know Jump on, do it. That thing. just wasn't my thing. Right. I got in right at the end of. 
battle rapping. So I didn't really have to, I battled a couple of times, but I didn't have to do any of that. Yeah. You know, that was a, uh, in Minneapolis, the scene was broken up between, back then, like the real emo, rhyme share stuff, and then like idea of like destroying people, you know? So it was, it was a tough place to come in, but I definitely developed my skills and my style and all of that outside of the scene. Like I'd hop in and try to play punk shows, they'd be like, why are you screaming at everybody? <laughs> and then I'd go, you know, I'd go play at these punk shows and kind of get sharper. And then by the time I was playing all the hip hop shows again, I'd already built my own following of people who were like weaving between scenes right. and like finding their own. What are these people like? Was there a type of person that you that you were that you were attracting at that time in terms of getting into what you were doing when you first started? When I first started, there wasn't. When I first started, I wasn't. Like, none of the Doom Dudes were really, like, welcome within the hip-hop community, at least in our eyes. I'm sure there are some people that were like, yeah, it's fine, whatever. There's all kinds of bad rap, but... <laughs> but in our eyes, it was like, you know, we'd play a show, and people would be like, yeah, man, I can't wait to see your band play. Like okay, that, so, they weren't, so they weren't really... So the people that were following you from the punk hardcore stuff weren't necessarily embracing what Doom Crew was doing. Yeah, yeah, but also the hip-hop community wasn't embracing what we were doing. Right. You know? Right. You know? So how did you guys find these people that since since you know one side of your experience was the punk thing it wasn't embracing the rap thing the other side was rap people not embracing the bands so like how did how did you find this this book shows man played a lot of played a lot of really fun shows tried to make a good spectacle out of it what was the spectacle like what did you add to make it a spectacle i think i think it was just like the whole presentation of a show is i'd come out this is like first gen ipod have my beats on there and having a little tin box with a mic in the box and the iPod and proper cables and I'd write rap, rap kit on the outside of it <laughs> and I'd get up on stage and just make a big show about opening this little silver box and then just be loud and try to grab people's attention you know like try to I don't know, try to make it into something they've never seen. Do you feel like that that rap kit thing is like a commentary on 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 rap at all? You know what I mean? No. Nah, it was it was just I had tried uh, <laughs> mini disc four track, I tried you know, every other different playback mode and the best thing was just an iPod. And you just didn't want that iPod look. Nah, nah. <laughs> I'd, I'd hide it behind a like an old cassette boombox. Yeah. Like uh, the band at the drive in. Omar used to put a giant boombox on top of his guitar amp. Mm. It just looked really cool. Yeah. So I was just like, ah, let's just throw a boombox on stage, get the crowd, you know, what's my DJ's name? Boombox. <laughs> you know, like, just trying to be engaging to the crowd as much as I'm trying to have good songs. So when did you start, first start to feel like you really had something going and growing and like, you know, um, some people were getting involved in? Well, after rapping for a little bit and getting pretty much all of the rappers that I knew and liked that weren't in crews, now, now, Doomtree started. Okay, so that's what Doomtree formed out of that, like just kind of these rappers who weren't necessarily like embedded. attached. Well, kind of, yeah. I mean, Doomtree started. I mean, it's impossible to really know at this point because it's so long ago. But me and Kai, uh, MK Larada, uh, 
who was the bass player in the band that broke up and made me start rapping to begin with. Okay. Went to college, came back, and he was like the only person I knew who made beats or anything. Okay. So of course he taught me how to make beats. Um, I what, what were you making beats on? I was making beats on an MPC. He okay. was making beats on a Sound Edit 16, like a music, like visual design program. It didn't have a click track. He had to drag in a drum loop to look at and visually lay down. Oh, there's no grid at all. Yeah, yeah. Wow. It was some archaic shit that he had been using since like eighth grade or something. Anyway, he pretty much taught me about production. Um, I don't know. I, I showed Beak. Anybody that I had met in high school that had an interest in hip-hop. Um, yeah, I met, I met Cecil Otter in high school. He was like a famous skateboarder. Where is Cecil? Where is he? Yeah, where is he? He's the only one I haven't met. <laughs> He's the only one really? I've met. Dude. Oh man, you gotta meet him. I He's... just I just met Mike at the at your show. Right. You know what I mean? Oh yeah. And then like okay, and then I, I was funny. I was like, ah, finally. No, with Cecil. No, he's he's out. He's just you know he's a low key dude. Yeah. He uh. You know, he wakes up, makes a beat, has lunch, makes a beat. You know, just not really gets a drink, yeah. makes a beat, chilling, makes a beat, has some dinner, makes a beat. Tired. This is a dude that like is at his house, just kind of stacking production. Not, not, not like the most. Uh, to put it this way, back back when we first started, when Toki was giving me shows at the old boxing place, and nobody had ever heard of me, and it was like, fuck, this guy I know, Cecil raps. Hey, you want to be my hype man? Nah, man, I don't want to do that. It's <laughs> like, come on, it'll be cool. It's like, all right, maybe you got a couple beers. You know, if they got drink tickets, I guess I'll come up there for a few minutes. Damn. You know what I'm saying? He'd come up with his hood up, zipped all the way up, his head down, you know, Mike in the hood trying to, you know, rap. And then it was like, dude, you got a couple songs. We got to fill like 25 minutes. <laughs> you got to rap. He's like, nah, man, I'm not going to do that. You know, and it was... It was like that. It was, it was him just kind of slowly developing the confidence to do it, and me nudging him along, yeah. and then you know, Doom Tree kind of just started like that. With the two of us playing shows. You and Kai, Cecil playing me shows. Me and Cecil playing shows. Um, our friend Bobby and our friend MK Larada Kai making beats and hanging out, and then pulling Laserbeak. And this, it was called Doom Tree then. Yeah, it was called Doom Tree right off the bat. Who came up with the name? I don't know. Uh, <laughs> me, me and Kai, I think. Nice. It was gonna be our production group. Oh, okay, I see. And then it very slowly developed into a rap group that, you know, we did these false hopes things where we were going to have a producer and a featured artist, and then it just kind of just developed from there, you know. And and so, okay, you and Cecil, Beak, and then who? Me, Cecil, Beak, Bobby. Who's Bobby? Bobby and Kai and me and Cecil are the first four people in Okay. The and the Bobby, did Bobby have a code name? Beautiful Bobby Gorgeous. Okay. Or Divine. He Was he a wrestling a, fan? Yeah. Yeah. Some old, that's some old gorgeous Jim Garvin shit. Right, yeah, yeah, that's great. He, uh... He was kind of one of the things, you know, he, uh, all right, all right, all right. One of the OG Doomtree origin stories is I was dropping my girlfriend at the time off at a strip club to audition as a stripper. I didn't know they had to do that. I guess they do. No beer. Makes sense. You can't just walk but, in and start dancing. But I was underage to get in there, mm -hmm. so I had to sit outside with the door guy. The door guy recognized me from the, the hip-hop scene, the door guy slash ballet, and we got to talking while my girlfriend was in there, and 
he ended up being Bobby. He was like, what would you do if you had $5,000? I'd be like, I'd start a record label. Mm. He was like, tight, me too. And then we like got to talking. And then me and him, Kai and Cecil started it. Yeah. And then- And did you start the label at that point too? Nah, I don't okay. think we knew what we were trying to do. I think we were just trying to make songs. Right. The whole label thing kind of just showed up as a necessity later. Mm -hmm. um, and Bobby, of the crew had a falling out like the very first time that I left town for tour. Damn. Yeah. So when you left town for tour that first time, I mean, what year is this? That's 2004. And then this is you solo? This, this is, is me, yeah. This is me selling merch for Atmosphere okay. on the Warp Tour and then pulling shows on tents on the side. Are you... So you're already involved with Rhyme Sayers? No, point. it's just same city. I didn't get signed until after that Warp Tour. Okay. I got signed in 2005. But the relationship, I guess. The relationship was, was yeah, it was building. I think they saw me at these punk shows. They saw me out there, like, working really hard, making a little name, getting some wreck in the local press and all that stuff. But they were, they, I think they thought I was super cocky. They didn't They didn't really like my shit. Did you feel cocky? I didn't, but I felt like I was good. You know, I'm just like every musician or artist kid. I thought for sure I was going to be famous as fuck by the time I was, like, 16. You know, like, just, all the, you know, I... My mom told me never to get a job from a very young age. You know, she's like, you're good at making songs. You should do that. <laughs> you know, so I was just, I was just never gonna do that stuff. So 2004 is a, is the first tour. That's a warp tour. I mean, yeah, my, I mean, my very first tour, I was 14. Okay. My old punk band. Okay. Drove around the Midwest playing playing basements. basements you know? <laughs> this was the first. This is the, this the, first, the first rap tour. First rap tour. First bus tour. First everything. Yeah. It's because it was atmosphere out there. You know, and uh, how long was it? Do you remember? It was Warp Tour, so it was two yeah. months. Yeah, so yeah, so that's what I was thinking. Like, yeah, it's like this is the epic. Yeah, I, I, you know, I've quit every job I ever had to play a show, but the last job I had, I quit to go on that tour and never went back to working again. And so, what happened when you left? I don't know, man. I think. Uh, I was, my job was to sell merch, mm -hmm. but I was terrible at that job, and I think they knew <laughs> I was going to be. I think they were kind of seeing what I would do if they gave me the opportunity to play shows out in the world. So, Slug from Atmosphere was like, okay, here's your job, selling merch. Bring a set. People fall off this tour all the time. There's always, right, it's always opportunity for somebody yep. to get on and do something. Yeah, so pretty much the first day we got there, we set up uh, the merch, and I immediately left and walked to every stage manager and told them I could play 10 minutes to an hour with like five minutes notice, whatever. Mm -hmm. And I had shows like the next day. Damn. Yeah. And I was playing pretty much every day to the point where they had to, there was another merch guy and they had to like yell at me like, he's not playing as many shows as you. So <laughs> either trade off and help him get some shows or you're going to have to like work at this merch table. Right. Before. You're actually going to have to do your job a little yeah. bit. <laughs> I brought out a... Uh, did you have your own merch too? I, well, I did. I had my first record by then. And um, your first record was which one? Ipecac Neat. Right. Yep. Right. Which was pretty much every song I had written up to that point. Now, that was self-released at that point? I was on Doomtree. That was before on Doomtree had okay, before it was a real show or anything like that. It, it was, was like just a like a just like a logo or something yep. I was putting on self-released album. Pretty much. And it, did, did anything else come out from Doomtree around that time? Or was this like Not the first me, but Yeah, no no no. We did we did a bunch of like self-printed, self-made, photocopied records called False Hopes. Okay. They're all called oh, False Hopes. Okay. Where, you know, the very first thing we put out was just called False Hopes. It was me and Cecil 
lot of four songs a piece. Cecil produced or? Um, produced I think, or? I think Kai and Cecil had beats on it. I might have had a beat on it. And, you know, we just, we would always like, oh shit, we have a show. That show is in, on Friday. We need, we need to, to make an album. Yeah. We need to make an album <laughs> for that show. And that's what we did pretty much for every show. We would just make like a mixtape. We put together like a 22 song false hopes mm-hmm. and we printed thousands of them and I just gave them away on Warp Tour. Tight. And uh, to so this tight. day, people know, you know, it was all of us on the crew, a couple of dudes from Minneapolis, and then the other guy that sold merch got on there because Rhyme Series didn't think it was fair. <laughs> if I was going to have merch, if he wasn't involved in something, they're just trying to be fair. Yeah. So yeah, we, we just, I just was out there dumping free CDs on people. Trying to play the best shows I could in a tent. Killed it. And when you get back? When I get back, I have uh, a tour with High Respects coming up, and I've got labels offering me deals. Damn. And then Rhyme Sayers nice. scoops me up. Nice, nice, nice. And then, so, and then what's happening at Doom Tree at that point? Because Bobby is gone. Bobby, Bobby had been, yeah, Bobby either left or was kicked out. I wasn't there, I don't right. know. <laughs> um, by the time I got back, Bobby and a guy, uh, Jamie, who was in the crew at the same time, those two had a thing. When I, by the time I got back, they were both out. But everybody else is there, and it whittled down from like the original 13, 14 to 7, and that's how it's been for the last several years. So that's, yeah. it's you, Cecil, Mike, Sims, Dessa, Dessa, Paper, Paper Tiger. See, okay, I don't. Okay, I don't know Paper Tiger. It's all good. You'll, okay. you'll meet him. He's a good dude. Okay. But these are all. I mean, this is my oldest friends. And what? Okay, so this is 2005. Yeah. And then it's the same lineup. No, like since then it's kind of been. Um, I think it's been the same lineup since 2008 or 2009. Okay. Okay. Cool. And so, what is it like? Getting signed around Sayers at that point, does it feel like there was? I mean, to me, there was no better rap label to be signed to. Mm-hmm. You know, like that was. I mean, especially then. Right now, I've we've been working on Doomtree for 11 years. Right. It makes sense to like run there, do distro, all that stuff. When the time I got signed to Rhyme Sayers, I felt like there is no possible better situation Absolutely. ever in the world than there ever will. You know, legendary label, legendary lineup, and how, and how did how, how what was it like working with them? I mean, you had been kind of self-releasing. I had been. I mean, they let they let all of my independence and all, the way that I do everything. I think they loved it. I okay. think they were happy to see somebody that was willing to grind on the road as hard. So they pretty much gave me a platform to go, and I went. You know what I'm saying? They were like. How much touring are you willing to do? How much touring can you get? <laughs> right? You know what I'm saying? And they're like, oh, this is gonna work out nice. And so when you got signed, yeah. did like, did you get like a booking agent immediately? Did you have one already? Like, no. Atmosphere's booking agent saw me and liked me, and then I pretty much just like, come on, come on, come on, book me a tour, book me a tour, come on, come on, come on. So no management or nothing at that point. I didn't get any management until like two, three years ago. Wow. You know. And. <laughs> I like my manager because he's a really nice guy, but man, managers. He's nice. <laughs> he's good. He's smart. And he's, you know, 
a lot more responsible than me, and I suppose that's what a manager should be. Yeah, no, that's, that's certainly what mine is. Uh, he's willing to read things that I won't read, you know what I mean? It's I'll read great. everything. I'll just read it three weeks from now. <laughs> Give me a little bit. Give me a little bit to, like, not be doing anything. I like to read it and then pretend like I didn't. Like, that's that's my favorite thing. Mark as unread. <laughs> Only in my mind, though, not even in the... Oh, no, you know, dude, if you look at my phone right now, I'm probably close to 7,000 unread emails. Like, probably... Well, I didn't want to make this a contest, but I probably got, like, 30,000 unread emails. Like, that's not even a joke. Like, I believe it. I, believe it. I have a... My, my, um... Like, that part of organ... Like, I'm a pretty organized dude. Like, I get things done, but that part of shit, like, organizing the information as it comes to me, not good at all. Feeling how the world is out there? Not good at that at all. Um, so... What was, the, uh, what was the first album you released with Rhyme Sayers? My first Rhyme Sayers release was called Audition. Okay. Was that the one with the briefcase? Yep. And that was me trying to like figure out what I wanted to sound like. Yeah. I tried to walk the right side of the tracks, but I've hopped a couple trains. Mom would cry if she knew the haps, but I can stand who I am and face today straight. No, we're not a thinking change what I be singing. No one like me. It was every rap song I had made to that, every solo right. song I had that made. That was life that until that point. Oh shit, I got all these songs, I should put out a record. <laughs> no, Audition was like, oh, I have a record deal, I should make, make another make record. record. Yeah. So I was getting my sound chopped out, figuring it out. Just looking at the last few weeks, man, I was here uh, for your comeback shows, but 2,500 people, is that a safe assessment? 3,400? 3, 3,400 people. Um, and it's, it's just another example of something that, you know, especially people from out of town can see. Like, Doom Tree has a heavy, heavy-ass influence here in, in this town. I mean, it's looking that way, man. Yeah. Um, we just sold out almost all ten. We released, we have a, an annual show called The Blowout yeah. every winter. It's that first half. We usually do, like, a night, maybe two nights. On the seventh year, we did seven nights in a row. Mm -hmm. You know, five in the small room, two in the big room. You know, it's always been cool. We just announced... 10 events from December 6th to December 12th or 13th. The pre-sold sold out in five minutes. Are you kidding me? The, for 10? Yeah, 10 for shows? 10 shows. The, uh, the next day, when we did like the real show, like it, it opened to the public, those sold out in like a minute and a half. Are you kidding? Yeah, dude. That's we, amazing. 10 shows. We have 10 shows the first half. No, no, no. no. It's, it's a... Uh, Three or four first half shows, one at the varsity, one at the turf club, one at the triple rock. It's like all over the, yeah, city. All over the city. All over the city. In like a week. Yeah, in, in the course of a week, yeah. Um, but yeah, I, th I think there's like maybe 200 tickets left to the Thursday first app show. That's like thousands and thousands of tickets that we just sold in like a couple hours. And is, this, is it just all different combinations you guys playing all the shows? Or um, was it just Doomtree playing every show? It's like, Doomtree playing every show. And between each of us, we have enough catalog to play a different show every day. Pretty much. And then we're doing like the Ice House. We're doing only our side projects are playing. It's tight. You know what I'm saying? Like we're doing, we're, we're, we're doing like 
a tour of the whole city with like every project we so, got. So, I mean, but this, this is the thing, right? Because Minneapolis is a city that supports its rappers in a way that no other city that I'm aware of Musicians. Does. Not just rappers. Yeah, because I guess that's what I wanted to get at. Like, even when you were starting and seeing the scene and, and its different iterations, was it always like that? Like, did you always get the sense that, like, I mean, we're going back to the token high respects. Yeah. So, like, it's, it's always been a pretty inclusive and big scene. Right. I think somewhere in, like, the... Somewhere in the last like five six years, it's got crazy yeah. inclusive yeah. and really like collaborative as well. But it's always been since I got here, it's always been supportive of new artists. It's always been competitive uh, for like style and for innovation between bands. Right. You know what I'm saying? There's no major labels here, so the only people you're trying to impress are the Your other peers. bands. Yeah. You know, so everybody kind of. Gets gets influenced and moves together. Mm-hmm. All the hardcore bands all slowly became like electronic-y dance bands all at once. Interesting. You know what I'm saying? All those electronic-y dance bands either branched out and became like instrumental dance dudes or singer-songwriters, mm-hmm. but like all at once. Like you know, it's always about like what are, what is what is the scene doing? Yeah. There's always bands outside the scene, and there's a million scenes, but largely it's like all the influence of each other, you know, yeah, pushing things right. forward. So let's talk about let's talk about Dootree for a second. Because Dootree has what three albums? Three full-length crew albums. When's the first Doom Tree album drop? Um, I want to say 2001. Okay. Um, oh no no no! The first crew, full crew, full record. crew album. 2002, probably. 2002. Okay. What's the name of that album? Doom Tree. Okay, that's called Doom Tree. Uh, and then Doom Tree put that out itself. Yep. Okay. And then what was the second one? No Kings. Okay. Right. That was the like that's the first like real one well the first one came out first one came out with like kind of like a b-size record that's also pretty much an album like so maybe first one second one and then no kings no kings is the first like let's go make a record the uh first one has like 28 songs lots of solo songs Mm -hmm. lots of like well i made this this can go on there everybody wants to be represented exactly evenly everybody's got the exact even amount of songs it, on it. It was all a democracy. Yeah. It was, yeah. And No Kings was like, all right, we're going to try to have no solo songs on this record. Pair it down to the best. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and then Doom, did Doom Tree put that out as well? Yeah. So Doom Tree, when did Doom Tree, the label, actually start? Somewhere, somewhere between starting in 2001 okay. and 2000, I want to say 7, 2007, 2008, we ended up with distributor, publicist, and you know, kind of in-house crew, and just like vibes, like we are not just having these meetings for fun anymore. Right. We actually have a release schedule. I mean, I don't how I don't have much you want to get into the business of it, but do you all own it, like everybody owns it, or how, how does it work? Yeah, like? all, all of us own it, um, except for one of us who uh, 
could if they wanted to, okay. but just kind of hasn't gotten around to but he has doing like the paperwork. Probably buy in or something. No, no, no. We're all we've all. I mean, we haven't we haven't put our own personal money into Doomtree for so long at right. this point. Right. It's all like fueled by our annual show and what we did the year before. You know what I'm saying? And, and everything is kind of taken into account and organized based on like budgets yep. and all of that. That's yep. amazing. We definitely mean Beak and Dessa pretty much run the business at this point just because we did everything by committee for so long right. that everything took way too long. <laughs> you know? And it just kind of like having, ended up having a conference call about every yeah every about little every little matter. thing. And it kind of ended up getting to the point where if there are still if there are big things to talk about, album art, things like that, we all get together and we all raise our hand or whatever. Mm -hmm. But for the most part, day to day, Laserbeak handles that because everybody trusts him. Everybody believes that he can handle it. He can handle it, and again, everybody trusts him. Yeah. You know? I mean, you know, I, and I tell you all the time, it's just so amazing to me. I've been a part of a few different collectives. I mean, not that many, but enough to know I really like, a part of me kind of doesn't even like it. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> yeah. like I appreciate having that. The thing I appreciate most, especially with like health club, is just having like these, being around creative, productive, ambitious dudes, and we all kind of get what each other are doing. Like that in itself is just priceless to me, but I don't like, I don't like making decisions with other people. Yeah. I really don't like that. That, like, that, that autonomy we were talking about earlier, like it's so easy for me to have conversations inside of my head. Totally. You know, so totally. it's just amazing that you guys have been able to like keep everything not only together, but it's just growing. I feel like it just gets bigger and bigger. You know? I mean, I don't know if it does, and, and it might. I think we don't look at it like, how how is this thing doing? You know, all of us put our head down and what we're supposed to do and work and tour and play and get our job done. And then a year and a half goes by, and we look up and we're like, oh, tight, all right. And then we put our head back down and get back to work. You know, work ethic. Yeah, work a lot of work and a lot of like. I think maybe there's something about being polite Minnesotans, you know, but we've been able to like get over anything that could. Right, because what, what would happen, you would think, especially you probably being the flagship artist. Mm -hmm. I don't know, I don't know what that means, but like. Well, I was, I had, I was there. People could get jealous because I'm maybe the biggest dude in the crew. Right. But I have like a two, three year head start on everybody in right. the crew. And everybody recognized that coming into the crew, so there was never any vibe no, with that. There's no question nope. about that. There's, 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 there's obviously no special treatment for me. For real. Right. As soon as Dessa joined, we were all like, oh shit, she's going to be bigger than all of us. <laughs> Do you know what I'm saying? So there's never been any kind of like resentment there with her. I think, I think, you know, just like any career, there's frustrations when it doesn't go the way you want, there's ups and downs, there's a wave you gotta ride, but, you know, somewhere in this 11 years, somewhere in the middle, when we weren't getting along, and we weren't 
weren't feeling good about each other and shit was way too hard. I think maybe that happened at the same time as something really good happened for the crew that made it so we had to stick together. Right. And whatever happened, however that worked out, we kind of got over that hump where shit was hard and now shit's just easy. Right. You know, shit just works. So, alright, we're gonna, we're gonna wrap it a little bit, but I wanted to talk about like the health stuff a little bit. You know yeah. what I mean? Like that was a big deal and like it was really... What was the decision like to put it all out there? Because that seems to me to be something that not a lot of people do. Yeah, you know? I think it was because you know my music is pretty much I put the shit out there. Right. In my songs, I talk about my life. I don't get all super detailed and I keep it kind of coded. But at the same time, if you listen to my songs, you know some shit about me. Right. And there's nothing to me that worse than canceling a tour and not explaining why. Right. You know what I'm saying? Right. So canceling a tour like a couple weeks before it was supposed to start and being like, you guys, I'm really tired. Sounds like I'm addicted to meth. Yeah. yeah it does. <laughs> or, or pain pills or something like that. You know, anybody who says I have to cancel this tour because of exhaustion, I just assume they're on drugs. Right. You know, and that's maybe wrong, but that's what I assume. I mean, that's what happens a lot of times. That's what that's happens. That's the coded, you know, explanation for drug use or so, rehab. Yeah. So know. I was gonna just be honest and being honest actually kind of like saved my life man because of people's because kind of, of people's supporting supporting and, and contributing to the cause and you know I was we raised like 40 some thousand dollars to help me with my life and bills that's amazing you know what I'm saying and that's, that I mean, were, were you nervous at all about putting out, you know, like that's that's probably the most personal kind of situation. It's like I need a new kidney. Yeah, well, like <laughs> I need a new kidney, like I need y'all to help me, yeah. you know what I mean? Like, yeah. for, you know, for, for a fiercely independent person, like yeah. what was that like, you know? It was hard. It was hard to make the decision that I was going to ask for any help. Right. And I didn't. Doomtree set up that stuff and got out there and then I, you know, I went with it because it was a good idea and I needed it, you know? <laughs> but, uh, I don't know. Once I decided, you know, I have to cancel this tour, I have to say what's up, I can either put this out there and then play it up and play it up and, you know, make like a weekly blog about how my health is doing. Or I can put it out there and then I can take the first break I've ever taken in my life. Right. Which is what I did, you know, like, I've... I've until I was forced to stop working and touring and working and touring because of my health. You know, 2004, I quit my job and went on tour mm -hmm. and I hadn't stopped again until, you know, last year. Are you <laughs> are you doing anything any differently now that you're back in it? Like, Yeah, yeah, I think I was, I was perfectly content touring hard in a van for six months a year, you know, with a hotel every other night, right, you know what right, I'm saying? Right, right. And then since the surgery, I'm feeling like, fuck that. You know, I, I, I'm not gonna really deal with any bullshit. You know, I'll maybe take a little less money and take a nicer traveling device right. or stay in a hotel that's nicer or whatever. Just you be know, more comfortable. Taking two years off of touring and then coming back to the idea of it, it just the whole thing looks a little different. Right. I feel like I'm still kind of built for the road as a, as a like mentally and as a person, but. You know, I have to treat myself better. Right. You know, so I'm allowing myself luxuries that I just was too punk rock for for my whole life. That's what's up. You know, so it is. It is tight. You know, and you know, I've I'm, I'm, I got tattooed knuckles. I got a tattoo on my head. I'm like. You know, 
built to be on the road. Built to be in position, <laughs> Definitely you know? not I'm, built to be in a cubicle. <laughs> no, man, I'm, I'm, I'm a lifer at this stuff, and I'm real. I'm realistic about what that means. Right. And, you know, I know what the bottom line is, and hey, like I said, my mom told me when I was really young, you know, don't expect to make tons of money, right. but go do something you love to do. Yeah, to do some work that you love to yep. do. And that's you that's know. how I've been living. So what's next? Um, Doomtree has a record coming out in January, nice. and then we're gonna hit the road for at least February and March. Hopefully, we'll get some festivals in some Europe after that. Right. Um, and then I'll, after that, I'll put out my newest record. I'd like to produce your next record. Hello. <laughs> Heard that world is binding. Yeah, it's binding. <laughs> um, yeah, man. I'm, I'm, like I said, I'm, I'm a lifer at this. I'll either be on the road or I'll be making things to play on the road until I'm so old that it won't even make sense that I'm rapping. I gotta make <laughs> blues music. No, you know that's funny. I think it's gonna be all of us, dude. Like I really feel like there's no reason. Like you know, like the people who you see everywhere doing the thing, and you know they're not gonna stop doing the thing. Yep. Like, I'm gonna be 50. Yeah. Doing this thing. You know what I mean? Like that's crazy. Man, and some of these dudes are 50. That's real. You know? That's real. Some legendary rappers are 50. And that's okay. Yeah. You know? The Rolling Stones are old. We that's just need hell. We need to tell, uh, we need to just, I think, man, fans need to understand that it's okay. Fans are growing up too, man. Yeah. There's but always going to be like rap that. for kids and then rap for people that love rap. But you know, what? honestly, dude, like being in LA especially, I see a lot of OGs out there. Like these are the best, some of the best rappers ever that have ever walked the earth and they're still rapping and, and people don't care. Yeah, that's, yeah. Are they making awesome, hot new shit? Well, or are they just legends? I think they're, I think they're making what they think is, is awesome. And that's fine. And there's going to be somebody that likes it. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? There's going to be some like true school old head that's like, man, nobody's, nobody's ever fucking with M.O.P. And honestly, a lot of people are not fucking with M.O.P. M.O.P. I just heard a new M.O.P. song uh, about a month ago that it premiered, did it? Mm -hmm. And they, he sampled um, Head Over Heels from Tears for Fear. Right. And it made the hardest motherfucking rap song <laughs> in the world. Of course, it's like of course. A, It's like this sweet ballad about robbing people. It's like my, incredible. My old DJ, Plain Old Bill, good friend of mine, the way he puts it is... Rappers should never get worse. Right. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> You're writing. Yeah. It's you. You should only be ever getting better at writing. Right. You know what I'm saying? As a, as a craftsman. As a practicing a craft. As a writer. Right. You know what I'm saying? You can get bored and lazy and you can miss sometimes, mm -hmm. but you should always be getting sharper. Always. And the thing that I feel like holds a lot of rappers back is beats and rules. Mm -hmm. You know what I'm saying? A lot of people's beats sound like they're from 1996 right. still. <laughs> And you could be saying like the newest hottest shit, but you're stuck to this like idea and rule set of what hip hop is supposed to be, yeah. which is gonna age you. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? Especially, it's not only age especially you, but since it done. doesn't even exist anymore. It doesn't exist anymore. Yeah. Kids don't even know what the idea of selling out is. Right. You know what I'm saying? They don't buy records. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> <laughs> they don't buy records, they listen to records. So if a song shows up in a commercial, they're not like, that dude sold out. They're like, sweet, I don't know. Yeah, this song. you know what I mean? You know, and if you're from the, the school that I am, where you need to sell records to make money, you know, and yeah. tour. That's just not how it works anymore. You need to sell a song to a commercial. You right. need to put your song in a, funny, in a movie. Every like, you know, it's the baseball playoffs now, mm -hmm. and ESPN is using. They're doing this montage, and they're using like uh, "Survival of the Fittest" from Mob Deep. Nice. And I'm nice. like, that's awesome. Those guys got that check, dude. <laughs> that's awesome. You know what I mean? Did they get that check though? I hope they got that check. Why would they not get that check? Because. 
because motherfuckers don't pay attention. You know, Survival of the Fittest definitely came out a major. Yeah. Well, that was loud, wasn't it? Well, well I guess was, loud was under RCA. Then, yeah, so, but yeah. I'm saying like that's somebody owns that song yeah. that is not Havoc and Prodigy. Oh my God, I'm I sure. That, I'm sure they got a piece of it though. Published. I hope. You know what I mean? Like, I hope. Got to hope. Was, that was like the era of everybody getting fucked. That's true. People <laughs> getting dark left and right. I, well, yeah. I guess that's the. That's the all good. Truth. I mean, this, this is what I'm saying. Is I'm hoping, I'm hoping for like the best for everybody. You know, I want Pharaoh Mantra to put out a record with the hottest, most insane, brand new shit beats. Yeah. He's one of my very favorite rappers he's a, of all he's, time. He is one of the most incredible rappers. Nobody, that have nobody ever can touch that dude. Yeah. But if you're gonna rap on beats that sound like '98, '96, mm-hmm. 2001, it's gonna be easy for people to sleep on dude. Yeah. You know, I will always be buying his record. Always. You know what I'm saying? But if he you know, like anybody, you know, these, these kids that are coming in, they do not care who you are, what you're from. They want to know if, if what you're saying, I guess, you know, mm-hmm. if your beats hot, if you're, if you're on that new shit, that's important to me as much as it is to my 15 year old son who only listens to rap music. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> he doesn't know who Fairmarch is. Wow. You know, he doesn't know who fucking any of these dudes are, mm-hmm. you know? It's not relevant unless it's new, unless you're trying to push something new. People that are holding on to like some old flag, holding on to an old flag, you know? You know what gets me about some of those guys is like, I feel like, I feel like it's not even a beat thing with some of them. I feel like it's like, they don't, I guess maybe the world hasn't put enough value on like what they're really good at and really special at. What do you mean? Like, there's some guys who, there's, in terms of craftsmanship, in terms of just like their mastery of rapping as a craft, like they could do something over a clip track mm-hmm. and it would be amazing. But it's like they're not allowed to have any faith in that. Yeah. You know what I mean? They're not allowed yeah. to think that just that alone. And, and just that, because I think sometimes, you know, cats like want to make, they just want to make big songs or make this or make that. But it's like, no, you're a unique talent. And I yeah. feel like if you were new and you sounded like, you sound when you sounded unique, people would gravitate towards it yeah. immediately. Yeah. You know, but people I think people are put in situations where they don't feel like that's valuable. You know? Yeah. Yeah. People people are really good at letting someone else decide what's good about exactly. them. Exactly. You know? Exactly. It's not tight. Not at all. Well, I guess we'll, we'll, we'll end right there. Tell people where to find you. I, I know they already know, but tell them again. You can find me on Doomtree, which is D-O-O-M-T-R-E-E dot net. You can find me at rhymesayers.com. You can find me at Yeah Right, which is Y-E-A-H-R-I-G-H-T-P-O-S with the at sign in front of it for Twitter and Instagram. I don't know, man. Look up P-O-S Rapper on your Google box. There you go. All right, folks. Secret skin. Peace. Bye, 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 bye. Isn't any winner here? No King Arthur, no Guinevere. 
No good guys, no bad guys. One night all the black and white disappeared. And it's never been a fairy tale, a movie scene, or anything parallel. Real life drama is a circle that turns till the motor breaks down in the carousel. But you can hop off anytime. Pick a line if you're down for the sitting time. You spend a dime, so you still have the right to choose. Do what you do as long as it ain't with a friend of mine. All the fun times over with. So stop pouring sunshine over shit. You see the bump in the road now. You can swerve or run right over it. Push, pull, push, pull. I don't wanna play this game with you. Push, pull, push, pull. I don't wanna play this game with you. Push, pull, push, pull. I don't wanna play this game with you. Push, pull, push, pull. Stuck in the middle of this game with you. And this is nothing unusual, love becomes bump and run, looking out for number one. And it's hot in the summer sun, and you don't have to run the cumberbund for a funeral. Yeah, it's a harsh-ass metaphor, but what's the use of being sensitive? We're speaking on some dead shit, and last I checked, the dead can't listen in. Plus, you really don't give a fuck, don't interrupt, but try to bring up the limp enough. Admit it sucked. This isn't trust, one little slip up fucked all the rhythm up You're set free from the prison ward So what you looking all bitter for? I swear I saw the word liberation about 15 times on your vision board Push, pull, push, pull I don't wanna play this game with you Push, pull, push, pull I don't wanna play this game with you Push, pull, push, pull I don't wanna play this game with you. Push, pull, push, pull. Stuck in the middle of this game with you.